0: I'm uh, Martin Brest, and it's an early um Saturday morning in Santa Monica, and I've been asked to take a look at this movie that I did 150 years ago, and I'm as shocked as I'm capable of being as I watch these uh credits come up. It is a journey. Oh, man. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll try and do my best here. Wow, i just seen these names come up. the end of shooting, we, uh, we went to Detroit to shoot some, uh, some of the, the chase sequence, the part that didn't involve the principal actors, and uh, we shot this opening title sequence after we were finished with all the chase stuff. This guy actually was actually describing, as it turns out, he was actually describing the trucks in the, in the truck chase to one of his buddies, I found out, when we went up to him to get clearance. We were shooting all these shots out of a uh, unmarked van like uh, almost uh, like surveillance footage. We'd drive around and stick the camera through in between some curtains and uh, we shot all this footage and we had to go get clearance and I remember we had an off-duty policeman with us and there was one shot of some kids spitting milk that was in a really rough housing project and after I shot the I was operating the camera for this opening sequence this shot here the kids spitting milk I went in to get clearance from their parents to use it in the movie and the off-duty cop who was accompanying us in the van would not come out into that housing project with me he said if you want to go you can go I ain't going in there and I went in there knocked on the door and found the mother and got clearance to use the shot Now, a lot of this, uh, this ironically, uh, that's unusual, but ironically, this sequence here, uh, right in the back of the truck, was the first day of shooting. Uh, It's it's unusual for the opening of a movie to be the first day of shooting. This was the first shot we shot of Eddie in the movie, as it turns out.
1: I've been here too long. Talk to me. Uh, Just give us a minute, okay? No, I ain't got
0: no moment. And I think we knew that we were going to have a lot of fun with them once we uh, started this. You
1: know what this is? This is a federal tax stamp. You can't beat that. You can't get no cleaning in that. Talk to me. Tell me something. So why don't you keep going to business yourself if this is such a great fucking deal? I would, man, but I ain't from Detroit, you know, and I don't know nobody in town that can handle a job this big, but y'all supposed to got all the connections, you know? But tell me something, shit. I'm a businessman. I'm going to sit down and do what you want to do. You're right. It ain't easy to get rid of this shit. I know, but see, I'm a businessman, you know? This is my thing. I'm doing business here. I will the trust. Let's get this fuck out of here. There you, you go. go. That's what I'm talking
2: oh, about. Kid, Thank right. you very
1: much. I appreciate it. Cousin, my man, don't dash yet. Um, this looks like two grand to me. This looks like $5,000. Give me, let me see. The deal is for 5000 That's about $2,000 that you can't You know count what? They don't want this business
2: to me off. I told my people it was supposed to be five
1: grand.
0: Actually, this little interchange was inspired by a little bit between uh, De Niro and Harvey Keitel in Mean Streets. I tell
3: you what, let's not fucking hassle about it now. Take the two fucking
1: grand, and on the next score. I promise I'll make it up to you. Look, really, man, don't jerk me off, all right, man? Jerk somebody else off. This is bullshit. I need, I need five thousand dollars, not two thousand dollars. Thing, man, don't do this to me. Look, don't be unreasonable. You're not dealing with Johnny Bananas. Come on, yeah. Nah, no, I, I have, I have no idea what Johnny Bananas, but can I have my mic? Can you, no, look, can I say a slow. You know,
0: <laughs> I don't know if this qualifies as commentary, but I'm just sort of getting hypnotized by watching this here. So again, all this as I recall was the first day of shooting. And the, the the chase that's about to start was a combination of stuff that was done in uh Los Angeles and in Detroit. All the stuff with the principal actors was uh done in Los Angeles. Just
1: stop, man. Just stop. You got some jumper okay, would you give me a jump? Yeah, don't I
3: know?
0: And the whole idea of shooting second unit truck stuff in Detroit. Uh, to get the real feel of Detroit, uh, you know, and get real sort of urban environments. It was something the studio held over our head throughout the shooting. If we went over budget, we wouldn't be able to go to Detroit to shoot this chase you're about to say. So this is all Los Angeles right now, but we're about to start intercutting between Los Angeles and Detroit. This was a very nerve-wracking, uh, you know, some of the stuff is obviously uh, stunt guys, but uh... a lot of it is eddie i mean the stuff that uh... you know you you, that's eddie and here's this (laughs) this is kinda hairy to shoot we shot all the shots of eddie in downtown los angeles kinda just running through red lights with a police car in front of us clearing the way and i was in the camera car behind eddie warning him on uh, my megaphone to be alerted for turns that were coming up so he could hold on tighter (laughs) That was a stuntman, and uh, after, after he did that, he, uh, he uh, didn't really want to go back on that truck again. We called this truck the train, for obvious reasons. It was a uh, you know, a double trailer truck, and the front bumper, that's a stuntman, of course. The front bumper of uh, the truck was a steel I-beam, so it could go through anything without impairing the truck's ability to drive like that, for instance. Oh, man. That's me up on the roof up there. I think I was wearing a yellow jacket in that last shot. There's Eddie in a real truck. This is Detroit. This was the shot that that guy was describing in the street earlier on. He was describing the movement of the truck. So, again, we shot all this wide stuff in Detroit, but the tight stuff of the actors in L.A. Now, coming up on this, uh, there's this scene where the truck comes rolling down the street, and uh, there's an amazing bit of great stuntsmanship. Gary McClarty, our stunt driver who drove this bus, incidentally, um, also was driving the truck, and one of the cars that he hit was not supposed to, but did break loose from its... Uh, tied down. This car here, this station wagon, almost wrapped under the car. He whips it out of the way, makes sure he gets gets it out from under the car and continues on. It was a pretty amazing piece of driving. When I woke up the morning we were going to shoot that straight, I woke up with a heavy heart because it was uh, uh, probably the most dangerous day I've ever been involved in. And uh, I was really concerned about getting through the day with everybody being okay. And we did. I was glad to have it behind me. This gentleman here coming up was a local cop we just plucked out of the chorus line there. (laughs)
4: <laughs>
0: Took a number of takes to get a usable one, but he uh, was a good sport. This was in L.A., and if I'm not mistaken, that whatever was written on that door, I remember for uh, it was misspelled, and I was in a real panic. But it was sort of in the days even before home video, and I really. Uh, only was able to rest knowing that no one would ever get to really examine it but that obviously is not true any longer this is Paul Reiser of course way back when and he and Eddie really were able to to whale
1: you going I sort of had the feeling that the Detroit
0: Police Department as distinguished from the Beverly Hills Police Department should be a whole different sort of species and the idea of having Jewish cops to me, seemed as sort of un Beverly Hills as possible, so Paul seemed a, a perfect candidate. We named him Jeffrey, so sort of a little uh, dig at Jeffrey Katzenberg, who was the head of the studio at the time. No, he wasn't even the head of the studio, he was, I don't know what his title was at the time, but uh, it was our way of teasing him. Now, coming up, we have a guy named Gil Hill. Who, uh, I met when I was doing research in Detroit, uh, and Gil was the head of the homicide department in Detroit, and I saw him, here comes Gil, and I saw him, uh, at the police department in, uh, Detroit when I was scouting locations, and there was something about him. He almost seemed to me like he could be Eddie's father, and, uh, there was something about his, uh, bearing. He had a kind of dignity that I really, doug and we i asked him if he wanted to read for the part and uh he did and he was not very good and we kept rehearsing rehearsing and he got better and better and and he before too long he was great and uh i asked him if he'd come down and do it and he had never acted before and uh he came down and he said to me you put a lot of faith in me and i'm not gonna let you down and he really did it. He did a great job and had a great authenticity and uh, you could tell that uh there was something below the surface. No more of these setups. You understand?
2: You're a good cop. You got great potential but you don't know every fucking thing. And I'm tired of taking the heat for your ass. One more time you're out on the street. Do you understand
1: me? Boss, I mean ta- Do you understand me?
0: is actually running for the mayor of Detroit now. Oh, this boy. movie <laughs> sort of got him some public acclaim in Detroit and he became councilman uh, and then head of the city council and now he's running for the mayor. Go on, Go home. I asked him after this uh, if he did a lot of this in his job, this kind of yelling, and uh, he said uh, he never yelled at any officer like that, but he had been yelled at like that himself. that i think actually happened accidentally in a rehearsal and we uh kind of weaved it into the take that car was pretty hairy that car which uh we were scouting locations in beverly hills and we stopped for coffee the crew and myself before production and we somebody pulled up to get coffee in a car exactly like that and we said oh my god this is the car this is the car he has to drive, and we tried to buy it from those people, and they wouldn't sell it, so we went out and got a couple of old ones and sort of painted it and dinged it up to match the memory of that one car that we saw. Now we're about to meet jimmy russo james russo who uh i first saw in a uh, in an nyu student film uh, he was quite extraordinary in it and he always stuck in my mind and he seemed like he'd uh when when we needed a guy for this part and i wanted to use somebody that nobody had seen before and uh went to jimmy
4: look at you yo when why you get out well, i got six punches off
1: you got out six months ago, you're just yeah. coming to see me now?
4: Well, they
3: got me out a year early for, you know, a good time, and uh, I went out to California to get some sun. Well, I got yeah.
4: some,
3: man.
1: I should tell you a couple hours. I've seen in a few years, What's up? 10,000 Deutschmarks. Deutschmarks? What is it? They're barrel bonds, they're bonds. Untraceable. You stole them? Oh. I don't want to hear it. I don't even. I don't, I'm sorry I even asked. It's just good to see you, man. Missed you.
4: Yeah, I missed you.
0: Sylvester Stallone was going to be playing Eddie's part until a couple of weeks before shooting, and uh, when we made the change, everything uh, got thrown into the air, and all the work that had been done on the script before had to sort of essentially get thrown out. a
1: security guy. Jenny Summers. Jenny Summers. Oh, man, I haven't seen Jenny in years. What's she up to? Ah, uh, she's doing great, right? She's a manager of this art gallery, the Halls-Benton Art Gallery out in Beverly Hills. Uh, it's like a world famous place, right? You ever hear of it? Yeah, I buy all my art there. A <laughs> ball corner pocket, two cushions. Fifty bucks, you don't make that shot. Bullshit.
4: A hundred? You gotta bet. <laughs>
1: what are you going to do, huh? You He's just as bright as you always, man. 20, 40, or 60, 80, take it. What the fuck are you business with
4: What are you going to do? Excuse me.
0: Now, this scene coming up at the bar, this was quite... Uh, it, it, there, was a, there was really a wonderful moment in it where Jimmy Russo says to Eddie that uh he loves him as a friend you know as a friend as a brother you know and uh the way it was edited made preview audiences laugh in the wrong way i i guess the the sort of directness of a guy saying to another guy that uh he loves him kind of threw the audience a bit and the studio wanted that cut out and it seemed essential to me that this character had a love for Eddie and would do anything for him and, and that Eddie's character knew that and uh, I didn't want to cut it out but the laugh that the, it engendered in the audience was just uh, show stopping in the, in the worst way so uh, we just trimmed it, trimmed it, trimmed it frame by frame and we just got it to where it wasn't quite as I think we, I don't remember what we did I think we cut off the, the end of his shot after he says I love you which I think held a little too long and made the audience uncomfortable. I think that's what we did. We just kind of adjusted it a bit, and we were able to keep it without uh, having uh, the audience okay. go down the wrong okay. pike. With
1: Balance it. yourself. Oh. Okay. Here we go. My- <laughs> I'm opening the door now. Okay. Here we go. All right. Here we go. <laughs>
2: Hey Mikey, where have you been?
4: Oops, Jack. What do you got there, Mikey? Yeah, Here's your laundry.
0: Here we have Jonathan Banks. Wonderful, wonderful villain.
1: I came here to see my friend. I had him with me.
4: I figured, you know, I could run. What am I supposed to do here, Mikey? Act. There was a whole box full of those things there, I mean, I, I took a couple of them. I didn't think anybody was going to miss them. I think I'd take them. No. Shut up. I'm, s- I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, shut up. Man, yeah, please. Just shut up, Mikey. I swear.
2: <laughs> I swear, if you ever show your face out
0: there I again, you know, swear, i, just, please, I Ever. I won't. Ever. I won't.
4: I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I fucked up. I'm sorry. Okay.
0: I'm sorry. Now we were rushed to get out of this location, as I recall, and we couldn't get extra coverage of Eddie falling to the ground in that little melee that preceded this. And I remember, even to this day, Eddie kind of disappears. I mean, you can see him lying on the floor in the background of this shot. But he kind of disappeared from the scene there. And it's a little unfortunate. It kind of confused some people.
3: Axel, I thought I told you to go to the hospital and get that bump on your head checked out. My head is all right, man. It's not a request, Axel.
0: I love Kill Hill. There's just, some, there's really something about him that you know, that he had a this quality, this sort of dignity somehow that really, I don't know. for for whatever he didn't have in experience he made up with uh, internal qualities that are just you know as I watch this now even with the sound turned down I'm just sort of uh, impressed by his stature somehow and there is this father son thing that's really kind of nice hey look we're talking about a friend of mine here
2: yes we are aren't we now let's take a close look at that. One, a hoodlum friend, two a professional hit. Three, in a cop's apartment. This whole thing stinks to high heaven.
1: Uh, how do you know it was a professional hit?
3: I didn't just walk into this town from the cotton fields.:
0: Now there Who is You know, the, the movie's sort of like this friend? weird hybrid between um, in the heat in of, the head, of the night and, head, you, and head, you, you know, the, the movie in the heat of the night and the Beverly down. Hillbillies) <laughs>
1: to take my vacation now.
0: Stand away from this case, There's a shot coming up, the introduction to, to Beverly Hills, which is sort of like an obvious Steal and homage to the Beverly Hillbillies. All right. Sort of the idea of some sort of outsider coming to the uh, rarefied land of Beverly Hills.
2: It'd be the longest vacation you ever heard of.
0: Go a little Beverly Hillbilly action here. Again, without sounding kind of goofy about it, the whole thing kind of the. The, the thing that really interested me about the movie is sort of it echoed kind of my experience of coming out to California in a crummy car from the NYU Film School, coming out to the American Film Institute, which at that time was housed in Beverly Hills, and uh, you know coming out with, with a buddy of mine in, a, in an old junker that barely made it across the country and just sort of being amazed and sort of wondering how I was going to survive out in the rarefied land.
1: Is this hotel real expensive? Not from Beverly
0: Hills. Can I get your back for it? I remember there was a whenever we screened this, there was a laugh at the end of the shot. That I never could figure out. I think it had to do with this uh, little interchange back there. <laughs> now I can see it. I never saw it I I wasn't aware of it as we were shooting, but that gentleman who the extra there who played the uh The doorman back there gave Eddie a great look. It's uh, something I didn't see until I, you know, had a little removal from the movie. Now, this thing, this scene unfolding here, as a lot of the scenes in the film, we had sort of a predicament, uh, sort of an opportunity of Eddie having to sort of con his way into a circumstance or convince something of of something.
3: No, no Rolling Stone, no Axel Foley, I'm sorry,
1: sir. Oh, that's all right. You guys probably just made some kind of mistake with reservations. Why don't you just give me another room now, go up and go to sleep? I'm
3: sorry, sir, but there are no rooms available.
1: Don't you think I realize what's going on here, miss? Who do you think I am, huh? Don't you think I know that if I was some hot shot from out of town that pulled inside here, and you guys made a reservation mistake, I'd be the first one to get a room and I'd be upstairs relaxing right now. But I'm not some hot shot from out of town. I'm a small reporter from Rolling Stone magazine that's in town to do an exclusive interview.
0: As I said, you know, Sylvester Stallone was going to be playing this part until just before shooting. And I thought that the idea of Eddie playing the part would be magnificent, but I really wanted to stay away from any issues of race. I felt that race should not be an issue in the film. It should be more of a class thing. And there were two places where he kind of sort of, you know, played the race card, as it were, and I, it was just too good to resist. So I kind of broke my rule here, and we had fun with this whole Jackson thing that he does.
4: Fine. Fine, And that'll be sweet
0: 1035.
4: Thank you
3: very much.
0: Yes, sir. Coming up, we needed a shot of Eddie walking down the street My in Beverly Hills, and they w- we good. couldn't fit it in our schedule, and I was begging for it, begging for it, and they wouldn't let me have it. So one day during lunch, we were in downtown L.A. in a really crummy street, and we got this guy on the right here in some outfit, uh, these two guys, which were Eddie's buddies, and we put some fancy cars down at the end of the street, put on a long lens, and put up some greenery and it looks like Beverly Hills. This was like a really scuzzy area, believe it or not. And we were able to sort of run over there on our lunch hour and just grab that one shot because we desperately needed it. Now, (laughs) I'm just laughing in anticipation of Bronson Pinchot, who was mind-bogglingly delicious in this. every take was completely different and every angle was completely different the angle on eddie was completely different than the angle on bronson and uh... the fact that this was cut together to look like two people are actually talking to each other it was a miracle of editing it took forever in fact it was so chaotic looking in dailies that the studio was thinking about reshooting it making me reshoot it and uh... billy weber uh... cut it together really quickly and uh, needless to say, they asked us not to reshoot it, fortunately, because uh, it has some of the more inspired comic acting ever.
1: Folly is here to see her. Is
0: That sounds like hyperbole, and I, I'm sorry, but what Bronson is doing here is just off the scale.
1: Now, I you something to drink. Why I think I'm
0: just going to turn the volume on so I can listen to it myself here.
1: Espresso. No, I'm fine. Thank you. I make it myself right back there with a the little lemon twist. It's good.
0: Try it. <laughs> it's, Bronson was amazing. There's some yeah, some stuff that he did uh, later on that was so funny, I, I had to almost excuse myself from the set because I kept ruining takes by laughing, which happened a couple times in the movie.
1: collector,
4: get the fuck out of here. Somebody else I said it myself. Axel <laughs> so fully what on earth are you doing here
1: how you doing
4: i'm fine hold a second i'll be right down
1: great excuse me serge
0: <laughs> bronson he's unbelievable it's good to see you. Here. this is lisa eilbacher of course
1: you? Do you like yeah you good you're getting old fuck you <laughs> what is it mustache
0: one of the challenges she had was and this kind of short scene kind of create the impression that she and Eddie went way back and were friends from childhood. Over
4: there. Great. I can't believe
1: how you filled out.
0: And uh she filled it in kind of nicely with sort of little touches here and there that implied a history. to
1: talk to you about Mikey.
4: Oh, is in trouble again?
0: Although, that hair. <laughs> that hair. I remember we really were going around and around on her hair. And uh I I I still not quite satisfied with it there. It looks a little bit something. In any event, that's Lisa Eilbacher.
4: Look, I can't right now. I'll be up in a second.
1: Mikey mentioned that you helped him get a job.
4: Yeah, uh, the guy who owns this gallery hired him. It's a favor of me. Who's this guy? His name is Victor Maitland. He was working for Victor at the gallery's warehouse. Lord Castle, I can't talk right now. I have to go upstairs.
1: It's go. Um, I'll call you later on. We'll get together later and talk, okay? Sure. Be good. Hi. Oh hi. I have a delivery for Victor Maitland.
4: Oh, I'll take it right upstairs to him.
1: Or maybe I should give it to him myself. Uh,
4: well, deliveries are supposed to be left on my desk. Yeah,
1: but now, these flowers. It's imperative. I'm gonna go myself,
0: right? trying to come
4: up with a villain was uh
0: was kind of a it was kind of rough. Uh, something about Stephen Burkov's power, the sort of the, the laser quality of his. His luck. I think I saw a photograph of him in a paper somewhere because he was in a play as, you know, he's a writer and he's a director in addition to being an actor. Very sort of experimental and avant-garde work.
2: That's terrible. It's fucked up.
0: But the photograph I saw of him was so potent that uh, we thought it would be a wild way to go.
4: Good
2: gracious. I'm really sorry to hear this. Would you like to sit down? Can I get you
1: anything? No, I'm all right.
2: Well, how on earth did this happen? Detroit is a very violent city, isn't it?
0: I remember this location we, we kinda really struggled to place uh in this building that towered over Los Angeles and uh I remember fighting to, to really try and get us to shoot it up there rather than another location and they built this entire office set on this abandoned floor, this unfinished floor at the top of this uh, building so we would get these great views of Los Angeles out the window however the day <laughs> the day we shot the city was just completely smogged in so all you see is uh... white.
1: Hey Jake, get
4: the fuck off! Get off me, man.
1: Get off me. Get the fuck off me. Get off Get the fuck off me, man. Get off me. Get the fuck off me.
0: You gotta
4: play games, man? Hey. Ouch. Hey. What the this? I can describe all of them.
3: Please move to the side of the car and put your hands on the hood. Wow, What's what you guys? You heard what he said, sir. Do it
0: Casting right Beverly Hills cop was really sort of a challenge. This, man? Hold up. I kind of wanted them all to look like TV you cops. You know, very d- different than anything we saw in the Detroit section of the film. I wanted them to all look like surfer, sort of actor cops. This gentleman is frisking out. He actually showed up to the audition in a... Uh, in a police uniform which just seemed I know this is bullshit, though, man. I it seemed like the kind of thing I wouldn't have fallen for but uh, <laughs> it kind of worked he just the fit the bill
1: disturbing the peace disturbing the peace I got thrown out of a window what's the fucking charge for getting pushed out of a moving car huh jaywalking
4: this is bullshit
1: you know this is the cleanest and nicest police car I've ever been in in my life thing's nice in my apartment. Officers, have we seen any, like, um, movie stars? Could y'all stop and point them out to me? i never seen no shit like that. That's enough talking, pal. Okay, that's cool.
0: Now, this next scene in the jail cell, that's another one I was desperate to have, but we didn't have any money to build a jail set, so I think we repainted another set that we had over and just put some bars in front of it. This one here. This is actually the last shot we filmed in the movie, as I recall. And <laughs> he looks a little tired there. <laughs> now, we never got a chance to actually see what the Beverly Hills Police Department looked like, because they would never let us in. And I know, I'm sure this... You know, this is sort of like a fantasy of what it might look like.
4: Have a seat right over there, please.
0: We knew it didn't look like this, but we just wanted to really uh, go out on a limb there and just make it as different as possible from anything that might occur in Detroit. And here are my boys, John Ashton and Judge Reinholdt. I've always been a great fan of Laurel and Hardy and the Honeymooners and the opportunity to actually cast and put together a team that has the sort of the comedic magic of those kind of guys. And, and I think that these guys together do have that sort of perfect, perfect, perfect chemistry, uh, it was a, was a blast. John is a great actor. Judge is a great actor. And they really, uh, sort of went into this sort of, they just fit together like, uh, perfect They're just yeah, don't perfect
1: well for me with some bullshit you want to start some static hey, don't push me fuck you man Tiger.
4: yes sir
0: Ah, uh, the great ronnie cox for striking you. I have no excuse.
1: Forget about it.
3: Detective Foley, I'm Lieutenant Bogamill of the Beverly Hills Police Department. Do you wish to
1: file charges against Sergeant Taggart? This is some kind of joke, right?
0: You know, the whole thing in in putting this together, the, the premise was, and again, the conception of the Beverly Hills Police Department in this comes totally from imagination. But the whole notion was that it was sort of like the private security force for rich people as opposed to a more sort of democratic and for the people police department that might occur somewhere else. And again, back to the class issue, not to sound too pretentious here, but that was sort of like the whole kind of vibe underneath it, you know, sort of like there's... The regular people, and then there's these rich people who are somehow different than all of us. You know, they buy weird art, and they have, like, their own little police department that takes care of just them and is sort of out of touch with all the other uh, aspects of life. And even though that is fantastic and not, you know, reality, that was the premise underlying.
1: He's my boss.
3: He tells me you may not be very welcome back there. He says that you're an outstanding young detective. I find that very difficult to believe. That's true, though. He also says he nearly had to fire you for insubordination. I find that very easy to believe. Now, what are you doing in Beverly Hills?
1: I told you I'm on vacation. I went to the bathroom. The next thing I know, six guys threw me out a window. Inspector Todd gave me a message for you. Want to hear it? I don't think so.
3: He says if you're out here investigating the Tandino murder, you needn't bother coming back. He tells me if we inform him you are working on this case, he'll have you brought up on charges and fired. Now, one last time, what are you doing? I'm on vacation! Vacation. Vacation. Rosewood,
1: take Mr. Foley over to the courthouse and let him arrange for bail. Follow me, sir? (laughs) You know, I got a hand to you guys. If anything, you are extremely...
0: Judge is great
1: pretty good punch you got there.
0: I gotta say, you know, Marge Simkin, who was our casting director, really brought in some amazing people. Uh, This combo is just, these guys are just perfect together. I'm so uh, amazed. Seeing them all these years later, the chemistry is really amazing.
4: You know, if I'd known why you'd been arrested, I wouldn't have come.
1: Oh, you don't mean that.
4: No, I don't mean that. Axel, if it wasn't for Victor Maitland, I'd be waiting on tables.
1: Well, it just so happens that the day that Mikey got killed, he showed up my apartment with a bag of German barra bombs. Now, I think he stole him from whoever had him killed. When I mentioned Mikey's name to Maitland, that's when Maitland went nuts and had me thrown out. Axel,
4: you look like Whoa. a
0: problem. You go barging uh, into your office without an appointment. That's a lot of exposition. I mean, Some of these scenes, you know, there are a couple of them throughout the movie where we just had to sort of like tie all these story points together that are really a little bit... Uh, less than graceful but you know, needless to say the movie wasn't really about the story as much as it was about you know, the dynamics between the characters
1: same crappy blue shabby
4: Nova
1: <laughs> you think it's too late for me to study art?
4: yeah I do Axel why were you bothering Victor? we I mean, don't think he has anything to do with um, Mikey getting killed do we? oh no no I was
1: just poking around I don't think he did Axel
4: Victor Maitland is one of the top art dealers in the United States He has been for 10
0: years. Yeah, I remember being in a a fevered phone call with Don Simpson, rest his soul, about the expositional requirements for this area, the story points, and how much we should jam in and how much we shouldn't jam in, and which story points we should hit. And I was trying to shoot the scene, and I was on the, you know, it was the early days of mobile phones, and it was really kind of challenging to try and get off the phone so I could actually shoot something. (laughs)
1: <laughs> they always charge me a single room rate. How
4: can you afford that?
1: Well, actually, I can't afford it, but you know what they got inside that bathroom? They got little robes with little initials of the hotel on it. I love this place. I can't <laughs> leave this shit. <laughs> I'm gonna steal one of them robes. You want, want one? No,
4: thanks.
1: You want some of the slippers? No. I'm gonna steal some of them, too. You should take <laughs> some of this shit. Excuse me. Two seconds. Hello, room service? Yes, this is Mr. Axel Foley in Sweet 1035. Now,
0: coming up is the banana in the tailpipe, uh, which is something that people always bring up to me. It somehow becomes sort of an iconic joke of some kind. And it was originally going to be a potato in the tailpipe. Eddie was going to sneak down to the kitchen uh, of the hotel and get a potato, which would serve to clog the cop's tailpipe really well. However, uh, another one of those sort of budget battles ensued, and we couldn't shoot another location. We couldn't get to another part of the hotel to light it and shoot it. We just couldn't squeeze that in. So we had to have Eddie get something from an area that we were already lit and, and shooting in. So we decided we would do it in the lobby of the hotel. We couldn't figure out how we'd get a potato in the lobby. So we decided we set up a little buffet and have him take a piece of fruit, a banana.
3: Good evening, sir. Where the hell was that? And
0: he was going to get it from, uh, you know, he just was going to take it from a buffet, so we had to hire, you know, a, like a buffet attendant. Eddie brought Damon Waynes in, who was at the... <laughs> here he is. Get
4: peaches, plums, oranges, and bananas. Well, all I need is a couple of bananas. Hey.
1: Forget it, I'm not eating that. Take it back. Certainly, sir. This really looks
4: great. Uh, or... Can I get some uh, extra mayo? Certainly, sir. Thank you. Ready to go? Yeah.
0: There's the Mercedes. Can we get rid of that stuff. I remember asking Judge see if he could make a car act. I said Judge, can you make this car look like it's stalling out using the? He <laughs> did a great job.
1: place
4: yeah but I'm still not sure I should do this
1: okay you don't have to do anything but when you hear glass and shit breaking don't get scared it's just me kicking in the window
4: Sit tight. all right come on in
0: and now Harold Faltermeyer, who did the score did an amazing job of uh this is sort of early on in 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 the history of sort of synthesized uh, musical scores. And uh, what was really extraordinary, since the movie was done on a very, very tight schedule, is his ability to create something and rework it to picture so we could come in at night and see some cues that he did and, and, and rework them and rework them, you know, while we were right there and just sort of alter the whole cue. Can you find
1: something? Coffee grounds.
0: Because we didn't have a lot of time to sort of pre-plan it. So it was sort of like created and revised and revised and revised uh, on the spot. And uh, it was a really wonderful ability to be able to sort of customize the score like that. Sort of tune in each piece of music. Rather than just sort of get it and stick it in. (laughs) This gentleman here carrying the box... The older gentleman is Chuck Adamson, who is a uh... one of the great Chicago organized crime cops. Who, just as we were shooting this, became a writer and a television producer and produced a whole bunch of his uh... memories of working uh... organized crime. I didn't
2: know if he was trying to pick a make on me or what, so I thought I'd take you over there tonight and let him have a little shot at you before I tore his head off.
3: Come on, let's go. I want to get out
4: of here. Get off my back.
3: Come on. I got it.
4: More. Hurry up. Hurry
1: up. Give me the key, I'm gonna follow.
4: Have you ever driven Mercedes before?
1: No, but a car is a car. I drive my car every day. I'm driving, i have seen your car. Oh shit, that's cold.
3: your tailpipe, how could you not notice a man sticking a banana in your tailpipe? Well, he distracted us, sir. And how'd he do that? Well, he sent us a late supper, sir. See, this waiter comes over. Billy, he gets the point. A late supper. And what did you have, Rosewood? Uh, I think
2: it was a shrimp salad sandwich, sir.
3: A shrimp salad sandwich? Yes, sir. I want you two to go back to the hotel and wait for Foley to show up. And if you lose him again, don't bother calling in. You got that? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. A late supper. We've got something for you, Billy an anti banana disguise.
1: It may come in handy. A little extra protection, Billy. <laughs> Very funny.
4: Come on, Billy. Let's go.
1: Why don't you take the car and go on home?
4: Well, what about you?
1: I want to find out what this place is.
4: Oh, I can tell you that. It's a bonded warehouse. They hold our foreign shipments here till they clear customs. Well,
1: I'm going to go check it out.
0: Ah, okay. that's what a bonded warehouse is. <laughs> I'm not going to you out again. Go home. Yeah, as I said, we had to jam story points in wherever we could. It was sort of a little slapdash. So this scene, I was... Eddie was just going to steal a forklift and ride it up to that he was going to climb over this as he climbed over we didn't even know we were going to have another scene following it he was just going to steal this forklift and head over and get the box pretending he was uh, a worker There's no smoking in here.
1: I'm not going to smoke. No, I'm going to smoke when I go outside. Thank you very much. Thank you. Is your supervisor here?
0: Yeah, he's in the office. Can you
1: go get him for me, please?
0: What's the problem? Are you security here? Yeah.
1: Then you're the fucking problem. Go get your supervisor, please. Now.
4: Now! Okay. Well. Hey, hey, come back here.
2: What do we do now? We wait.
1: Okay. Can I help you? Are you the supervisor here? Yes, who are you? I'm Inspector for the United States Customs Service. Has all this stuff passed through customs already?
0: This no, scene the was the other scene that had, the, had a racial reference that I just couldn't resist letting go by. Even though that wasn't going to be part of the thing.
1: I don't know. Well, thank you. That's the the answer I was looking for. Why don't you guys just give me your ID number because somebody's going to lose their job behind this. This guy gave me a match, for Christ's sake. You gave him a match? Listen, listen to me. I I can't
0: tell you how invigorating it is (laughs) and horrifying to be setting up a scene and not know, like, exactly how it's going to sort of work out. The background
1: of each and every crate in this section, starting with this one right here.
0: Wow. You know, it
2: says here that by the time the average American is 50, he's got five pounds of undigested red meat in his bowels. Why are you telling me this?
0: What makes you think I have any
2: interest in that at all?
3: Well, you eat a lot of red meat.
1: Now, the inspector needs all the information on those airway bill numbers. And all the manifests, too. That's right, and he needs the records of all shipments due into the same destination.
4: What's this all about?
3: Just do it. You get some kind of warrant for this?
4: You know, you
1: have a very big mouth,
0: sir. Now, needless to Are say, this Is scene... Is that what you're doing? was shot right after the previous scene with Rick Overton in it because, you know, we knew that we were going to have to have some scene in the filing office where he was going to get some papers to track down whatever. I don't even remember what it is now. I
4: want you to know
1: something, pal, and I want all of y'all to know something. I can have 25 agents down here in 15 minutes to march in here, snatch a bond from underneath you, and you guys will be out of business permanently if I don't get some cooperation. Is that understood? Don't get upset, Inspector. We'll give you everything you need. Right, guys?
3: Everything you need. That's on my Porsche. No, sir. I don't know whose
1: it is. Well, you ain't got nothing to worry about, then. I don't know what y'all think I am. Maybe some kind of fool. Hurry up, quicker!
0: <laughs> I've always loved that cut from Eddie to oh, these two gosh. guys sitting there waiting. A lot of
2: coffee lately. Well, I think that's why you've a This of Needless realized.
0: to say, an homage to Laurel and Hardy.
1: you <laughs> almost gave me a heart attack <laughs> what are you guys doing here so late you're a cocky
4: son of a bitch aren't you
1: look man if you're still mad about the banana thing I'm sorry alright I just need a little time to myself I just was over to saw the expression on your face when the car conked <laughs>
4: yeah very funny lieutenant doctor's two days pay
1: get out of here he's not kidding no
2: he's not kidding by the way, thanks for the sandwich. He meant it as a joke, Billy, like the bananas.
1: Hey, wait a minute. I'm a fellow police officer I know what it's like to be on a stakeout. When I send that food down to you guys, that was from the heart.
2: Bullshit.
1: Why are we always arguing, man? Look, all three of us are cops. We should be working together. We all have a very rough day today. What do you say? We all go get something to drink and make up and be friends, huh? Forget it. Okay, fuck it. Then. I'm moving to drink. Though,
0: all right. You part of the development of the story was uh, was as far as I was concerned. And I'm sure was, as far as everybody was was concerned, was sort of the real critical part of the development. The sort of bringing together of the two disparate schools of police work. You know, the guys who don't get along, guys who have different ways of doing it. Sort of kind, kind of uniting, based upon a common uh, commonality, <laughs> common something. I don't know. Now, this young lady, whose professional name was Mouse, was sort of like a legendary stripper. And uh, this song, she used in her act, and it was just really, just sort of had a perfect vibe to it, so we uh, used it in the film.
4: Yes, oh,
1: I'm having a great time. Can I have a scotch and soda and the brother's dick? What do you want, like uh, light beers for the fellas? Two club sodas. Yo, crack me up, man, with this on-duty shit. Billy, Billy, you know, you don't have to be embarrassed if your dick gets hard. But your dick is supposed to get hard, see? That's the whole object of this. Tiger's dick is hard, but he won't let you know because he's a boss. The boss' dick got to stay limp, right? Yeah, I ain't on duty, so my dick can be hard.
0: Now, the morning that I went to shoot this, because we had a very little amount of time to shoot this scene, I remember I watched 48 hours that morning. I mean, I kept watching certain scenes over and over again, because there was something about Walter Hill's bar scenes and strip bar scenes and something about it that just seemed like this should have that kind of a vibe. Yeah,
1: so you guys don't know nothing about nothing, do you? You just got your badges and your guns and you're on the job, right? Make sure we get the right drinks if I drink club sold will throw up. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you very much.
0: guys are sort of like it's like in cold blood they always reminded me of those guys from in cold blood
4: think she likes you
1: think so no doubt in my mind
0: I remember really being nervous about doing this scene because it was so contingent Upon people looking at things and what their thoughts are about things. You know, Eddie looking at one guy and then looking back at Taggart and then looking to the other guy. It was all about looks and perceptions of what people are seeing and uh I was I remember being very alarmed at making sure it was shot in a way where all that was really clear.
4: Somebody tell me what's going on?
0: a of looks in this scene. Everybody's looking at it. It's like a little look, concerto. Sit
4: tight, Billy. Oh.
0: Wonderfully edited. I
4: remember
0: using all my uh, all the books I read in film school about screen direction and uh, Who's on what side of the room, and which way you should look to have a look tie into such and such, all that kind of stuff. Kind of like drawing on all of that to make sure we always knew where everybody was and who everybody was looking at, even though they were in far parts of the room.
4: I told up, you <laughs> up, give me a kiss, baby!
0: Give me a kiss, baby. That's delicious.
4: Everybody, freeze! Turn around! Turn
0: around!
4: Bill! Get your hands on the table! Bill! What's wrong, man? What's on the hospital? Bill! Get back, man. What you doing with all this gun, man? Get to get back. You change, man! Get you don't... Get back. Yeah. don't get back. I'm gonna blow your fucking brains! out. Please move and I'll kill you. Don't move! Turn over!
1: Way to go, Rosewood. You're some kind of cop, you know that?
4: Sorry for the disturbance,
0: folks. When we shot this next thing coming up right here, that, when we shot that, when Eddie did it, I thought, oh, my God, I shot the poster today. I just felt like that was going to be the image of the movie. It wasn't the poster, as it turns out, but it was an image that was sort of remembered. Now, this scene... This scene is, was hysterical because there was no oxygen in this set. The The roof was closed, and there was no way to get air in it, and it was in, the, in August or something, something like that. It was July, and there was no air, and everybody was getting really sluggish. And Eddie, who had never had a cup of coffee in his life practically, finally decided he was going to have a cup of coffee because he was just dragging. And he had a cup of coffee, and it sent him through the roof. And in this scene, he's like zapped. He's like flying high on a caffeine experience the likes of which he's never had. And he was so hilarious in this scene that I had to go into one of those offices. Uh, I kept blowing the takes because I was laughing so hard. I finally had to go back into one of these glass rooms uh, behind the camera, And listen to this scene with earphones. And even... John Ashton's laughing there. Even through the uh, room, they heard me laughing. So they had to cover me with moving blankets. So I actually didn't even see Eddie do this scene. I was under moving blankets, laughing my head off with headsets on.
2: Fully invited us to this bar. We accepted. Uh, We ordered club sodas, sir. Right. And... While we were there, Foley observed the two suspects casing the establishment. And before we knew what was going on, he'd already disarmed one of them.
3: Detective Foley deserves all the credit for the arrest, sir. Detective Foley, we appreciate your assistance. But in the future, if you want to practice law enforcement, I would prefer you did it in Detroit.
1: I understand, sir. I'm sorry. But before I go, I just want you two to know something, all right? The the super cop story... was working. Okay? It was working, and you guys just messed it up. Okay? I'm trying to figure you guys out, but I haven't yet. But it's cool. It's a fuck-up perfectly good lie, and it's all right.
0: (laughs) Eddie was on fire that day.
3: You guys are off the case. Foster, McCabe, your turn. Don't lose him. Not a chance, sir. And you two, in my office.
4: gentlemen some coffee and
0: donuts (laughs) I love these two guys they seem just the perfect in retrospect they do seem like the perfect sort of second tier of a Beverly Hills Police Department sort of ambitious and perfectly despicable
1: morning officers now
0: scene? in this scene this is a little strange but the idea of having two african-american actors of different socio-economical backgrounds seemed like something worth having fun with and uh, i told eddie at the at the beginning of the scene that i thought that maybe it was sort of uh mineable that maybe we could sort of have fun with this notion <laughs> Of the of the two classes, you know, one race but two classes, and he kind of was a little confused by it. And I I kind of you know laid it out a little clearer, and then he really he he wailed with it. He really did exactly what I would have hoped.
1: you want something to drink? Beer or something? I got some stuff in the trunk. Excuse me.
0: Now this mansion, Victor Maitland's mansion, uh, and the ensuing streets. uh was not shot in Beverly Hills. We found that at the time, Beverly Hills, I don't know how it is now, was extremely uh, unmovie friendly. And uh, when we shot that scene on Rodeo Drive when Eddie first enters Beverly Hills, we had to uh, actually shoot that, I think between like 7.30 in the morning and 8 o'clock in the morning. So literally some narrow band of unusable time. And for things like this, we found that uh, it was impossible to even consider shooting in Beverly Hills. So we found this mansion in a and I believe it was in Santa Monica Canyon. It's it's still there, I think. Of course it's still there. It's a mansion. These streets also coming up were not shot in Beverly Hills. Nothing really was shot in Beverly Hills. Nothing much. Now, in the days before video uh, assist in shooting, it's really hard to sort of see what a, an actor is doing uh, if you have a car mount, like what's about to come up, Eddie driving away, uh, you know, the camera's mounted on the car, so I was sort of sitting in the uh, in the bottom of the uh, passenger well. <laughs> in a shot like this, for instance, I was sort of like down on the floor.
1: in a good spot. All this shit happened last time I parked here. Thank you. I'm looking for Victor Maitland.
2: Uh, you realize that this is a members-only
1: club? Mm-hmm, but I have to talk to Victor. It's very, very important. Are uh, you sure it's Victor Maitland you want? Oh, yes, Victor Maitland, the gray-haired gentleman, very dark-skinned Capricorn. Victor.
3: Um, well, why don't you give me the message, and I'll take it to him.
1: Okay, I guess I can do that. Um, tell Victor that Ramon... The fellow he met about a week ago. Tell him that um, Ramon went to the clinic today and I found out that I have um, Rupert Simplex 10. And I think Victor should go check himself out with his physician to make sure everything is fine before things start falling off on the man. Oh, perhaps you better tell him that. You know, I think that would be best. So do I.
0: And we had a lot of flies that day. They really loved that buffet, and we had to spray it down every little piece of cake and every little everything was covered in like bug poison. We had to keep spraying it down. Had to make sure that we had like a clean thing of cherries or whatever it was for for Eddie to uh, munch on.
1: Look, guys, don't even try it. Okay?
3: Why don't you get the hell out of here, cuz?
1: Get the fuck away from me, man. <laughs> very good Victor could you like teach him to roll over and sit and do all that shit too what do you want we'll talk to
0: you this scene coming up here uh, you know it was really great in this movie because a lot of the actors were more than actors Eddie obviously is more than an actor he's you know he's directed he's a writer he's a comedian Stephen Berkhoff here is a an actor but he's also a writer and director
1: you know Victor I know that you're into a lot of crooked shit. And I have a pretty good idea that you had Mikey killed. And when I find out for sure, I'm going to fuck you up real bad. Is that so?
2: Now listen to me, my tough little friend. I don't know from under what stone you crawled. Or where you get these ridiculous ideas about me. But it seems painfully obvious you haven't the slightest fucking idea who you're dealing with. Now, my advice to you is crawl back to your little stone in Detroit.
0: What a puss. What scored. a great puss Stephen Burkhoff has. Look at that face.
1: Please step away from the table, sir.
0: Now, these are the brunette Beverly <laughs> We didn't want it to be too uh, redundant, so these are little brunette brothers. I remember one guy was blonde. I think the guy, the old, this guy here, and I think we had to put a toupee on him like that morning because I didn't want it to look like the same cops that busted Eddie in the earlier scene. Back in the Beverly Hills uh, Police Department set. Now, it's hard to see from this angle, but the the whole notion behind this set, uh, which we had to sort of whip up on very short notice, was based on a set that uh, I and the production designer of this movie developed for a movie called War Games, which, unfortunately, I uh, was fired off of. But um, we had spent a very long time designing this gigantic set. It was one of the biggest sets done ever at the time, and it was this hugely complicated set for NORAD, Mission Control... Okay, listen. The Air Force. And Everybody
1: knows that Victor Maitland is a hotshot art deal, okay? But I did some poking around in art.
0: We had done so much research and so much theoretical discussion of it, and it was and, and built it. Uh, although I never got a chance to shoot on it, that when it came time to do this set, which was a significant, we had a significantly little, uh, smaller budget. We kind of used the same ideas that we took a while to develop for the other set, which is essentially having a staging area, this office area where they are now, that overlooks a control room. And even though the control room area, with its screens and monitors and buttons and whatnot, cost 50 times more than this room, uh and even though we hardly played any other action in that room, it always served as a background. And uh, we kind of used the same layout as we did in more games, because it was nice to finally get a chance to uh use some of those ideas. But as i said in this in in these angles, you can't really uh, appreciate it. it's sort of the reverse angles where you see into the room itself. you get more of a sense of that
3: I'm sorry
0: now these lines that Ronnie Cox is saying here I'm sure he was given those probably uh, a half hour before we shot this or something. It was really, we were really winging it around here, because this is where the whole story had to sort of come together, all the loose uh, story points had to start to knit here. And uh, I know this was done like two seconds before we shot. In fact, uh, Stephen Elliott, who played the chief of police, is about to enter, (laughs) is holding a piece of paper in his hands, and that is his... uh, script pages is that what you're which he was sort of like reading you know just before he went on and uh in the rehearsals he had it in his hand and it just seemed like a good piece but yes ladies and gentlemen that piece of paper he's holding is his script uh his pages for the day and uh Stephen, i met uh, years ago in an audition for another movie he was auditioning for another part and The audition wasn't going well. He was reading lines with the casting director in a scene, and she wasn't an actor, and he kind of uh, railed at reading lines with a non-actor, and he stopped the audition and screamed at both of us and scared the hell out of us. And he walked out of the audition, and it was so impressive. He scared me so much. I thought, this is the guy we got to get for the chief, because the chief has to just come on for. A tiny scene, and he really has to be extraordinarily intimidating. And uh, yes, I remember that horrible experience, but this is the guy.
1: Is this the man who wrecked the buffet at the uh, Harrow Club this morning? your voice, for Christ's sake! What, can the guy hear me through the wall? Yeah, yes,
4: he, he can.
0: can. And also that thing that he did. he think he, he said, uh, "Is this the man that?" blah 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 with Taggart and Rosemont instead of saying Taggart and Rosewood that was an accident he did in rehearsals and I remember the the dolly grip, the guy pushing the dolly looked at me when we were shooting and he said Hi, we should keep it, that was pretty funny so I said yeah, good idea let's keep it and we asked Stephen to, to keep it
3: when you get there you can give him his gun back the two charges of disturbing the peace have been dropped against you but the chief says if you return to the city of Beverly Hills the charges will be reinstated and you will be prosecuted to the limit of the law sir may i say something really what well he seems to have enough to to follow you him. want to tell that to the chief
0: we knew that this scene was going to tie, was going to tie everything together in some way and that people were going to be angry at everybody uh, you know we we kind of had the general vibe of what was going on but not the specifics and uh and if you listen closely, you'll see it's deliciously vague about what the nature of the conflicts were. Oh, not this not this scene, but the next scene with the judge and Eddie outside the police department. Uh,
1: right. Uh, let me check on that tomorrow and get right
0: back to you. Now, this scene... Hi. The studio wanted to cut out of the movie because they felt the movie was too long. Jenny, there's a gentleman but without this scene... The whole sort of uh, impetus for Eddie to want to really get into the mansion and save Lisa Eilbacher at the end was, was completely shot. But this scene really established the villainy of the Stephen Burkhoff character. And I really wanted, uh, I wanted it in. So I wound up trading the scene for a freeze frame at the end of the movie when Eddie, Eddie's last line in the movie, there's a freeze frame, which I thought was a little tacky but I kind of negotiated, okay, we'll do the freeze frame, but let me keep this scene in. So that was directorial negotiations 101. Yes. Yes, I know.
2: And then?
1: That's it. He left, and uh,
3: I haven't uh, seen him since.
2: Mm. Jenny, darling, you wouldn't by any chance know where Foley is staying, would you? I have some information which... This might be helpful for him.
4: No, I I have no
1: idea.
2: Yes. 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 Oh, I hope I didn't disturb you too much.
4: No, no. No problem. We'll
2: have dinner soon, yes?
4: Well, that'd be lovely.
2: Take care.
0: Here comes a scene I was telling you about between Judge and Eddie outside the police department.
4: Never
1: mind, Bogan This is a chance for me and you to blow this case wide open.
0: I mean, as you watch the movie, it seems like it's, of course, yes, this makes perfect sense for what, what transpired in the previous scene. But believe me when I tell you, we had no idea what was going on. It's just like perfectly right on the edge of, Vagary. we
1: just take a couple of minutes. My friend Jenny and let us in Maitland's warehouse. We can be there when the shipment comes in and nail them. How can you be
2: sure if it'll be drugs or something? I got a
1: hunch, okay? That's a technique by which many crimes outside of Beverly Hills get solved.
2: Why didn't you tell Bogomil about this shipment?
1: Bogomil does everything by the book. You know, I'm starting to think that everybody in this goddamn town is a robot. This thing is very personal to me.
2: All he asked me to do was drive you out of town. Now,
1: I'm going to screw that up too. Billy, I love you. I just fell in love with you.
0: Now, this scene was the first scene that was shot with Bronson. And again, in this scene, I was just. Uh, I didn't know how Bronson's character was exactly going to unfold. But when he said this line here
3: You want to be the lemon waste?
2: Uh, yeah, sure, if it's no bother. No, don't be stupid.
0: And when he said that line, uh, I just—I I was biting through pencils uh, to keep from laughing because there's no place I could hide. And I ruined many, 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 many takes. Jenny, come on. That was just the beginning because he was just unreal.
4: Look, Axel, this has anything to do with Mikey getting killed, and I want to go check it out for myself.
1: I don't have time to stand here and argue with you, Jenny.
4: Wait a second. Let
1: me get my keys, and we'll argue on the way. Okay, Billy, your job is just today and observe things.
0: All right? I remember trying to find that building it was really hard, wondering what a warehouse would look like in Beverly Hills. I and mean, we all know, like, warehouses can be kind of old and depressing. But we wanted a chic warehouse, and we found this building wasn't even in L.A. But I mean, it wasn't even in Beverly Hills. But it really had looked like a Beverly Hills warehouse somehow.
1: Okay. Thank you. Is there any chance that you're gonna give me that key and let me go in there by myself right now?
4: No, dear.
1: Fuck. Come on.
0: cues in the movie this piece of music it was a very elaborate piece of music way too elaborate for the moment and we wound up clicking off all the different tracks to just reveal sort of like this rhythm track that was left and that's all we kept
1: well it looks like they've been here already
4: what exactly are you looking for
1: this this is a crate from overseas hasn't passed through customs yet
0: It's sort of like amazing that even though the plot is very sort of tinny it it does amaze me that it does kind of stick together it, that it's remotely coherent and that the concerns of all the characters kind of tie together is boggles my mind. Now, this scene has one of my favorite shots of Stephen Burkoff in it. He says something to Eddie's character, and Eddie's character said uh, it was, when we shot it over Eddie's back, looking at Stephen Burkoff. Eddie's character improvised something. Eddie improvised something rather, and uh, it wasn't didn't quite fit the scene, so we cut out. Eddie's dialogue but kept Stephen's reaction and it's a brilliant reaction but it was really based upon him hearing something but when the dialogue was yanked out that he was responding to it, it became even more interesting as you watch it you can really sense i'll t- i'll show you where it comes Shut up! up. i don't want to hear. i think it's coming right up now yeah here it comes Yeah, he was actually responding to something that Eddie said, which we yanked. And without Eddie's dialogue, it just became the most interesting, bizarre, kind of scary reaction. So uh still had validity, maybe even more so.
1: Yeah, Jenny, don't worry about me. We've got cocaine and coffee here. We're going to get wide and have a big party. Thanks for having me over, Vic. This is very
0: nice. This was, um, I think, the second time I worked with Angelo Graham, the production designer. And it was really uh, fortunate we had a shorthand because, you know, we had to sort of whip stuff up at the last minute. Everything was, uh, you know, not to be redundant, but improvisational. And uh, uh, we didn't have a lot of time to talk about sets. And uh, everything came together very quickly. It was good having somebody I worked with before.
2: Really? That would be a neat I've
0: worked, since worked with Angelo on a number of other movies. I adore him. It's not his fault that I asked for a warehouse location.
1: <laughs> Are you still pissed at me? Oh, no. No.
3: But I should have taken care of you in Detroit.
2: When I popped your little buddy. <coughs> Goodbye, Mr. Foley.
0: <coughs> what is it about villains and warehouse locations?
2: I'll
0: try. There's always a villain in a warehouse, an empty warehouse in movies, in there. <coughs> Remember this area when we were once Eddie got on board to do the movie and we kind of changed everything this area was a sort of the thing I was really aiming towards in the restructuring of the movie this whole notion that the unorthodox policing techniques that Eddie's character used wound up wearing off on the most orthodox Beverly Hills cops, and they actually kind of started to use his technique of following their instincts, bending little rules if, uh, if that was required. And, and the idea of Judge, who was playing a real by the books kind of kid, would actually sort of use some of that technique was almost like a victorious turnaround for the Beverly Hills cops, followed by, um, uh, John Ashton's in the, the scene coming up. And coming up in a couple of scenes. Uh, that was sort of like the, that was one of the most important structural dynamics we tried to uh, go after. The sort of uh, infection of Eddie's style onto the uh, uptight VH cops.
2: Check out the warehouse at that address
3: and act on whatever he finds I'll explain it to him later. Uh, DD6, Sergeant Tiger is here now. He
1: wants to talk to you. Shit! Billy? What the hell is going on? I'm sorry, Serge, I can't talk now. What do you mean you can't talk now? Just check out the
3: warehouse and please don't say anything to Bogomil. Sorry, sir, he's not transmitting anymore. Ah, shit. What's the matter? It's Billy. He's doing something dumb again. But I don't know what. Was he calling from the hotel? No, sir. Right now, his car is heading north on Palm Canyon Road.
0: Now, this was way before there was satellite tracking of vehicles. We just figured that would be something the Beverly Hills cops could do. Totally made up. Yes, sir.
1: Here. You two check that place out. Then find me and let me know what the hell is going on over there. And don't talk to anybody but me.
0: Now, this scene uh, coming up of the assault on the mansion really... Uh, freaked me out because I've never never really did action scenes before you know and the whole idea of shooting and all that kind of stuff is like a total new one on me and I was very uh, concerned about getting the geography of all of this right and came out a couple weekends before we shot it and kind of walked the grounds and came up with a structure for the scene in terms of when they're all walking together how they split up how they rejoin each other I just assume we could get uh, John Ashton on Judge Reinhold's shoulders I just hope that would work out seem like it'd be funny
1: I'm going inside you want to stop me shoot me
2: me too Billy really Sarge you can do what you want but I'm going in with Axel god
3: damn it Billy this is really serious trouble. even
0: though it's a very simple scene it kind of intimidated me in a way because I wasn't uh, really secure about shooting it. So we had very little time to shoot it. And I kept this next little bit, I think, where they're just walking together as a group, for this one little area on the other side of this door. I must have shot from a million different angles in a million different ways because I think I was a little flipped out about moving on to the heart of the scene. And we only use one little shot of the walk for it. it's uh let's see is it here or do we oh no it's right right when we cut back to them. Like this is this actual the set that we made the jail out of uh, as I was describing earlier on. It was the only way I could get to have a jail yeah, set is if we could just sort of like repaint that and put bars right, on it, so this shot and this shot is and this shot are all that <laughs> remain of like a million miles of film covering that little walk because um, I think I was a little afraid about moving into the heart of the scene.
3: Is Rosewood
2: back here? No, sir. Have you seen Tiger? Took off about 10 minutes ago. Foley's on the grounds. How the hell should I know? Get some people out there right away. Don't take your eyes at that
0: screen. Location worked out really great. This was supposed to be at night for some reason early on in the script, but night shooting was too expensive. for It, it was kind of a, you know, it was, the budget was very minimal. And uh, so we had to make it day, and thank goodness, because there's something about all this bougainvillea and the palm trees and the sunny Beverly Hills of it all. That kind of really worked well.
3: Why don't you try to locate Taggart and Rosewood?
0: I've always loved the way the music kind of changed here. In the middle of sort of like a sort of an action sequence, I thought it was really kind of a beautiful touch of Harold's. The way it kind of built, it's gonna cut back to them and it kind of goes back to that little, the way it builds and sort of comically supports their must be a way the changeover country. to Eddie's mo. Always oh, seemed kind of delicious. What's
3: twenty?
1: Six oh nine Palm Canyon Road. Who lives at that address? A Victor
4: Maitland,
0: sir. This is one of my favorite moments in the movie. The way the music starts to lift. This is really like one of my faves. the way eddie kind of enjoys them i really kind of i love that moment and i said a love interrupting it too with this I like putting one's foot through it putting one's foot through the moment with another kind of tension you all right? <laughs> oh man
4: what the fuck am i doing here
0: you know it seems almost like as i watch this in terms of action movies nowadays this really does seem almost like something from the silent era. i mean it seems so primitive by action movie standards but it's you know it wasn't strictly action you know it's sort of like this comedic action this laurel and hardy action was sort of a an odd hybrid for the time, I I guess, you know, it's it's since became like a thing, but the sort of like, the idea of combining this kind of humor with this kind of action, this kind of new territory.
4: Cover
0: me. That little uh, somersault. Eddie had to do part of that. He had to jump off the staircase and land on some uh, some cushions, and he wouldn't do it. And I, I I said, look, let me do it. If I can do it, you can do it. And I did it. And he said, all right, I'll do it too. Now, the next stuff in the mansion is a different location, a uh, completely different location. Uh, the mansion exterior worked really nice for the exterior, but they wouldn't allow us to step foot in the house. So we had... Oh, this is still the exterior. But when we finally head inside, oh, that guy on the right. The machine gunist on the right, who we'll see later on, is the guy who drove the truck in the (laughs) beginning scene, Gary McClarty, one of the great stunt drivers. This is a different location. And uh, we ran out of money in, a, in the budget for set dressing. We <laughs> used the furniture they had in the real place, which was kind of bizarre for an art dealer. I mean, we brought in a couple pieces just to doll it up, but we just didn't have any money for this location anymore. We were kind of at the end of the end of the deal. So this wonderful motif it would happen accidentally of eddie's sneakers uh his tennis shoes kind of squeaking which uh was sort of you know flipped out the sound guys in the beginning of the movie but then we realized it's sort of like a little nice motif for his character and they it happens a lot throughout the movie we kind of made a point that we actually put it in places where it wasn't <laughs> that machine gunner that's our driver our truck driver, Gary McClardy. You know what
2: I keep thinking about? Near the end of Butch Cassidy? The Redford Newman are almost out of ammunition. And the whole Bolivian army is out, out in front of this little hut. Billy, I'm going
3: to make you pay for this.
0: <laughs> yeah, all this furniture belonged to the people who owned the house. Except for that vase. day we shot this we spent we had a horrendous day we had to shoot just this van hitting the fountain not this other stuff but the van hitting the fountain and uh just the van end of it we not even know the police car end of it the van hitting the fountain and this gigantic dialogue sequence that's coming up we had to do all that in one day we had to spend a half a day on this van hitting the fountain thing and had no time to shoot the resolution of the movie which was uh a scene which i gave ronnie cox that morning uh and it's got tons of dialogue you're about to hear it and it just dazzled everybody's image it just blew our minds that he was able to sort of pull it together and actually do the scene i think in struggling with some of the dialogue he actually used that dynamic to help Give the scene the feeling that he was making it up as he was going. (laughs) There's Gary McLeod.
4: You're all under arrest! Lay down your weapons in front of you and take two steps back. With your hands up!
0: Very good. I love these guys. So this scene coming up was... uh, We only had, uh, I don't know, a couple hours to shoot this whole scene, which resolved all the characters. We used every camera that we had on the truck, and we just... Thank God that Ronnie Cox was able to pull it off. We just kept moving this barrage of cameras. It was like a uh, a firing uh, range of cameras. You know, we just had anybody who can man a camera, man a camera. And we kind of set up all the cameras on, the gr- on this whole group of actors and shot, 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 and moved them all a little further to the right. Shot, 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 kept moving it all around so we can get every possible configuration of close-ups of Eddie, over the shoulders to the chief, over the shoulders back to, uh, Ronnie Cox, singles on everybody, group shots, two shots. Oh, the whole combination of shots we had to get in, um, in practically no time. It was, you know, I was in a panic. I called the studio that during lunch and I said, you know, we got this really important scene to shoot. We don't have enough time. They just—they said, do the best you can. I was really flipped out, and I was smoking cigarettes at the time, and I smoked around seven, literally seven packs of cigarettes this day.
3: A lot of
0: setups. A lot of, not just a lot of setups. I mean, again, it's a very simple scene, just close-ups of people. But the thing that was tricky is making sure that there was uh, orchestration of, of looks for any given moment. A moment when uh, the chief looked at the cop, uh, at uh, Ronnie Cox, when uh, when uh, the chief looked at various other characters, we had to have the right shots of those characters looking at the chief. We had to have the right shots for Eddie's character looking at uh, John Ashton, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Every combination of a look had to be covered, you know, sort of like a million different combos. And uh, we got it all. We shot a lot of film that day. Because the scene basically came down to uh, looks and people sort of always being aware of what every other character is up to at any given moment. That's what this one was all about. I suppose congratulations on order.
3: Thank you, sir.
2: A report better be on my desk in the morning.
3: Yes, sir. First thing.
1: You were lying your ass
3: off.
4: <laughs>
3: <laughs> Why don't you go to the hospital and get your shoulder looked at?
1: Excuse me, sir.
0: Actually, the idea of Eddie wearing his gun in uh in his back belt like that without a holster or anything was something that we got from Gil Hill, the guy who played his boss. And uh, in, back in the beginning of the film, back in Detroit, uh, Gil Hill, who you know was a cop, uh, that's how he carried his gun. I think I'm staying Beverly Hills. I like it out here. And it was a similar kind of gun. In fact, uh, you know Eddie's gun and and wardrobe and all of that was again based upon the notion that everything he had, you know, was the cheapest, most low down possible. The only thing he had going for himself was his wits. Was the theory. And uh, here's a director with hair. That's the singular worst performance in the movie. My performance as the guy behind the counter.
1: Hey, you only have to come down to see me off, but I'm very moved by the gesture. Thank you. Bogomill
2: ordered us to make sure you got out of town.
1: <laughs> you know, it doesn't even matter to me, Billy. You know what matters is that you guys came down here. I'm all choked up on the inside. I now,
0: just before shooting, also, the last scene in the movie was the previous scene at the mansion where, um, where the whole sort of criminal aspect of the plot was resolved. But it seemed to me that there needed to be a non-plot resolution because of the bonding that occurred between all of these guys here. But that was sort of the real story of the movie, and that needed to really get tied together as well. So this was kind of thrown together at the last minute also.
1: You saved my life, okay? I don't think I'll ever be able to repay you, but as a token of my appreciation, I want you to have this fine Beverly Palm Road. Each time you get out of the shower and you're dripping wet for the rest of your life, I want you to think about our friendship. I want you to think about Axel Foley. I love you, Billy.
4: Thanks,
2: (laughs) (laughs)
0: Axel. Judge is great. Judge is just great. And John, these guys are great. Billy, take care of the tab, would you?
3: Hey, Tagger. Here you are, sir. This is for you.
0: No, that's all right.
1: You keep it as a souvenir. I already have three of them in my bag.
3: Yeah, thank you, sir. Take it easy. I'm Not gonna say goodbye.
0: Here comes the uh, the dreaded freeze frame. And again, it was a trade off. Forgive me, but otherwise I wouldn't have that scene with Victor Maitland and the girls. So. Yeah, just sort
2: of
1: figured you would. Does that mean you guys are gonna join me?
2: Uh, I don't think so, Axel. We're
4: still on duty.
0: I always kind of love this wow, I don't freeze frame think coming up. One out. Is gonna
4: kill us, Billy.
1: That's right. Listen to tag it here, Rose. We'd lighten up, all right.
0: There's actually another very touching little scene here between uh, Eddie and John Ashton that we had to cut out as I recall because uh, there's just too many goodbyes.
4: Don't worry about it, Just
1: follow my
0: But that's the way it goes Here comes that freeze frame. Oh, I hate it. I hate it. Oh well, what can you do?.
4: Passion hit the trees Angus cooking in the same TV